Are you an Aussie tradie and your paperwork is shady? Do the doggers from side keep you up late at night? Are you sick of pushing boats, swinging your tools more you gave up? Call us the tricks of your trade! Welcome to the Tricks of Your Trade podcast, where we talk about trade business topics to help you get through business life unscathed. Does the bill to pay you late and your cash flow fluctuates? Do you dread the office work? Can't afford a full-time clerk? Consider working smarter, don't be a business smarter. Call us the Tricks of Your Trade! Hello everyone, welcome to the Tricks of Your Trade podcast. I'm your host, Michelle Serson, Construction Adjudicator and Director of Tricks of Your Trade. Today on my podcast, we're going to be interviewing one of our own. We're actually going to be interviewing an Aussie subcontractor whose business went into liquidation. We're going to be talking to him about what went wrong, what his experience was in the industry, what happened with the fallout of his business going broke, and then what he uh, had to do to pick himself up, dust himself off, and get on with life. So it is a bit of a sensitive topic. Uh, For this reason, our guest is going to stay anonymous. And in case you're wondering or trying to guess who he is, we have used voice distortion software, so you will not be able to work it out. So don't even bother trying. Uh, But without further ado, I'm going to get into the interview. I have pre-recorded it on here, so there's a bit of a gap in the recording here. Uh, But I'm going to switch over to the interview and then I'm going to have a little bit of a talk to you about the interview afterwards. Okay, well, first of all, I just want to say thank you very much for being on my podcast. I know this is a really difficult uh, and probably quite personal thing for you to do, uh, sharing your experience with your business and what happened. And I just want to acknowledge that you don't have to do this, uh, but the reason that you are doing it is because we've had a bunch of conversations about how much this could help other subbies and you stuck your hand up to be the brave guy to talk about what went wrong. So um, just for context for everyone listening, you were an Australian subbie uh, working for Tier 2, some Tier 1 builders for several years in the construction industry, really good business. Uh, but things went bad and there were a few things that contributed to it. So in terms of how you started off in the industry, just so that our listeners can really understand and relate to you as someone just like them, how did you start out in the industry? Did you straight out of school do your trade? Uh, yeah, as, as such, I went straight into sort of labouring to begin with uh, in the trade I wanted to do. And obviously over time you learn the trade. Uh, working for different different guys around around the city, and so that's how I yeah got into the industry. Yep, and so you just obviously got more and more confident and decided one day that you'd have your own business. Yeah, eventually just wanted to work for myself and uh, bit the bullet, so to speak, and um, started letterbox dropping, doing all those things you do to try and drum up some work to begin with, and take that plunge, and um, yeah, ended up being able to. Make a go of it. Yeah, that's cool. So how long ago was that when you were doing letterbox drops? Oh, probably 15, 20 years. Yeah, wow. So, yeah, significant amount of time then. And over the course of doing business, obviously you started out doing little residential jobs and then you got little commercial gigs and you just grew from there. Is that what happened? Yeah, that's right. Obviously you want your business to grow and be successful, so I made sure I tried to go in different directions and learn uh, different aspects of the industry and yeah, went from 
starting off being residential and then got into commercial work after that. Yeah. And so you already had a business when you met your wife or were you, did you have your business after that? No, we sort of started that together. I remember we both used to drive around putting things in letterboxes and, <laughs> and so, yeah, no, it was a bit of a family business for sure. Yeah. And just for context, obviously, you've got three young children. Yep. Yep. So, yeah, family business. And in terms of how many staff you had towards the end of your business, how many guys did you have in your books? By the end, we probably had around 40. Yep. Um, so obviously started off as a one-man band, but then um, a couple of guys helping, and then yeah, grew at about 40 staff. Yep. And how many, around about how many million turnover would that have been every year? Uh, around about seven. Seven, yep. So it's pretty average, really, in terms of subcontracting business, working in commercial, you know, be kicking around in that, in that sort of turnover bracket. Uh, and most of your stuff was commercial, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Now, when you uh, got to a certain point, there were a series of things that went wrong. And spoiler alert, we know based off the topic of this podcast that your business ended up going into liquidation. Um, but I just want to highlight to subbies who are listening to this podcast that they might be doing everything right and things could still go wrong. So one of the comments that I hear all the time from guys who are doing it good who sort of say, oh, if they're that dumb, they shouldn't be in business and things like that. And I just think it would be really valuable for those guys to have a little bit of a dose of humble and sort of understand that these things can happen to you uh, sometimes and it can be outside of your control. So just to give people an idea listening, are there are there main things that went wrong with your business that really were the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak? Yeah, there was. There was a, quite a few. It was not one definite thing. Um, we had the usual problems of builders going broke on us. We probably on average would have a builder go under once a year, um, usually around Christmas time, which is always good timing. Um, towards the end of the last couple of years, we probably had two or three in the last year. Um, so that, you know, just not getting paid at all when that happened. Um, obviously, we weren't secured creditors. Um, we had uh, builders that would just go into liquidation and then sort of trade their way out of it. But once again, on the list, we were way down the bottom as a subcontractor and they had all those other secured creditors at the top, so you wouldn't get a dollar. Um, I had big problems with getting variations paid under our contracts. Um, we'd get the verbals or we'd get even an email, but if the push came to shove, there'd be some clause in the contract that would say it had to have been done Know, registered post or some silly thing like that to, or to have it approved. So sometimes they were just little amounts, but it, they all tend to add up. So combining all those things, uh, we also made a decision to move a lot of our um, ABM workers onto um, payroll, P-A-Y-G. We've got advice to have to do that, but um, that obviously changed a lot of the things as well on um, our costs. So yeah, those, those were the main contributing factors. Yeah, okay. So when you say you moved a bunch of guys onto um, PAYG, you're talking about how there were changes in legislation where you essentially they changed the definition of what an employee is, didn't they, at one point? Yeah, that's right. We had a lot of ABN workers, um, as many do in the industry. Um, but because we had all the work, they were working for us quite a bit. Um, so our accountants 
recommended that we really need to, and the, and the lawyers that we really need to bring them on to um, our payroll because of that. There's also a liability for the year before. <laughs> so we got we were given advice to back pay uh, a lot of those costs and entitlements and obviously that costs a lot of money when you've got quite a few staff on. Um, so that left us with a bit of a hole to fill in as well. Yeah, right. So you literally did the right thing as a good bloke and you back paid guys who were working for you on ABN and you ended up, obviously, you had a giant big back payment. But then what about the BAS for that then too? Is that something that sort of is factored into that or is did that then come later? Well, a lot of those debts go to the ATO. So we ended up setting up a payment plan with with them. Um, but of course, as you keep trading, you're accruing more tax and, and more debts with them when you're paying those as you go. So it's really hard to dig your way out of um, something like that once you've got it. Um, so yeah, that's how that came down. Yeah, jeebus. So, okay, so you've just stuck a whole heap of guys on the payroll and you've got a builder going broke on average every year. That was before trade credit came around, wasn't it? That wasn't really like a popular thing to have back then, was it? Yeah, it wasn't a popular thing. I had heard of it, but it, the expense at the time was just a bit hard to sort of swallow when, yeah, just didn't know if it would actually work for us. We had so many different builders and different contract amounts. And yeah, by the time we sort of figured out that that would have been good, it was obviously a bit late in the game. Yep. So builders are going broke, no trade credit insurance because it wasn't really a thing back then, um, and a big sort of ATO debt from back payments for doing the right thing. Um, now, one of the things I remember you talking to me about at the time was that you had a builder that went broke and just before he went broke, you got onto a payment plan with him because you were, you know, trying to help him out, let him progressively pay you. And then after he went broke, the liquidator made you pay back that money that he paid you. Can you tell us what happened there? Yeah. So like you said, they owed us quite a bit of money though. We found out later they owed lots of people lots of money, but we didn't know that at the time. They were just one of those builders that were a bit rogue, I guess. Um, so we put a bit of pressure on him, saying we needed to be paid. We weren't going to just take it. Um, and he agreed to a payment plan. Um, within a few months, ended up going into liquidation. Yeah. Well, the plan, they needed us to finish our projects, which is always the way. Um, it wasn't actually until about two and a half years later that the liquidators contacted us and said, oh, by the way, that money that you got paid because you're in a payment plan shows that you were aware that they were um, trading with debt or unable to pay their bills. So you actually got preferential payments. Um, when those payments we got were still just a fraction of what they owed us at the end, they still owed us another you know, $80,000 or something. So. We ended up getting a bill <laughs> in the mail. Um, and when I took that to our lawyers, they said it's actually unwinnable. You have to pay it because it is a preferential payment if you've been on the payment plan. So that was a real hard one to swallow to pay you know, tens of thousands of dollars back to a, a liquidator for a builder that went broke on us a half years earlier who actually owed us more money. Yeah. And it was for, I mean, geez, that money was for work that you did. So you had outlaid costs to do the work in the first place. 100%. Wow. So, I mean, in terms of planning, like as a director of a business, how can you, you can't really foresee that, can you? You must have surely, if you had have even known that that could have been possible, you would have thought you'd been in the clear two and a half years later 
that's yeah that's right so it's hard enough to even plan for a builder that goes down in that financial year and having to take that first hit alone having other ones come back at you two two years later two and a half years later yeah so at the time all this was happening did you feel like things were just a little bit outside of your control did you how did you feel about that i mean i remember you were trying to up your admin systems you were getting smarter with your customers and you were getting trade business coaching and everything um but that must have been really bloody frustrating to still have things just coming left of field yeah, it was because it sort of started to shift from, you know, enjoying what you do, getting a job done, pat on the back of the end and you get paid for what you do to almost, you know, pistols at dawn every every month to try and get paid, getting these other ones that would come back and bite you from a couple of years before. So it just became, you know, just not fun anymore. <laughs> it was really hard to get paid for what we did, the way we traded. We ended up getting a lot of help contractually, as you know, to build, deal with our contracts. Um, but then it was sort of a bit of a freight train running away. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, you said their pistols at dawn. I remember you being brave enough to go to dispute resolution meetings with builders over variation fights and things. And I remember thinking back at the time that you were pretty brave for a subby. Most subbies, you know, don't go that formal through the process under a contract. But you had some success, didn't you? Yeah, oftentimes if you... If they realised that you knew your contract and that you were in the right, it was hard for them to um, dispute it themselves and fight against it. They were just so used to having subbies, you know, um, relent and just take it on the chin. But they just would try it almost every month. And once they realised we could fight back each month, obviously it changes the way you um, deal with them because it's not as fun and it's nice, but it's your money at the end of the day, so you have to try and get it. Yeah, definitely. One of the things that I've heard a lot in the last 12 months and uh, one particular incident sort of comes to mind, but a lot of a lot of clients when they're in disputes make comments to me like I think the builder's laughing at them. Did you ever feel like that was happening to you? Yeah, definitely. I remember one um, dispute meeting I went to with quite a big builder. I was 100% in the right under the contract. Um they basically didn't have a leg to stand on by the end of the meeting. They said, look, if you're going to go ahead and do this, that's fine, but we're going to then try and go you with a, a civil court case afterwards. Just started to threaten stuff that they obviously couldn't follow through with. They were just trying to flex their muscle. Um, and in the end, we ended up coming to some kind of resolution. I can't quite remember it at the moment, but... Um, yeah, they just would like, like some of them just like to play the game and they would use whatever they could to try and threaten and tactics to scare you into just giving up the money to them, even if you're in the right. Yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely something that I've witnessed myself where I've been to dispute resolution meetings with subbies and there's been five people on the other side of the table and a PowerPoint presentation up in your face and, you know, a big sort of finger pointed in your face telling you that you're incompetent and if you were a competent contractor you would have done this and that and you know it seems like they must um get schooled somehow <laughs> in the builders camp on how to do that but you know it is something that I think a lot of subbies they wouldn't even know where to start and certainly when we first started working together years and years ago I remember you saying to me 
Michelle, I don't care what we do, just don't ruin my relationships with my builders. And I wonder, you know, if I can be, you know, and if it's okay for me to ask you this question now, is what do you think about those relationships? Do you think they were real? Not at all. They're completely non-existent today. Um, yeah, I definitely put too much emphasis on that in the, in the beginning. Obviously, when you build a business, you want it to repeat clients and people you get along with and you do a good job for them, but um, it gets to a certain stage where it's no longer the quality of your work or, you know, you could have worked for the same builder for years and things aren't going well, they turn on you. Yep. So you've not heard from any of the any of the builders that you've worked for? None of their staff have contacted you to see how you're going? No, definitely not. No, I've tried, and since then I've even tried to contact a few when it comes to, you know, what I do, what I did next, but it was all just, I was to do, don't, don't talk to him now. Yeah, right. Now, I remember you telling me when your company uh, went into liquidation, you told me that you went and you personally told each of your customers what was going to happen before it happened. Um, <clears throat> what happened? How did, how was it received when you went to front up and tell them that you were going to put your company into liquidation? Look, there was obviously a couple that were like, you know, sorry to hear that sort of thing, but <clears throat> what I did find was literally within, uh, you know, half an hour, an hour, the phone started ringing and all, all they cared about was their projects. Oh, who's going to finish this project? Oh, what's happening next week? You know, can I have the number of your supervisors? Well, who are they going to work for after this? We need to get this project finished. And, um, you know, I, look, without going into too many specifics, we had year on sites that we were suddenly banned from picking up. It just got really ugly, like, that afternoon. Yeah. Yeah, it was not, was not nice at all. No. And, I mean, what you were doing was actually something really gutsy and, you know, quite honourable. And you essentially walked into a, a bit of a shit fight, really. What, um, what were your thoughts when you were going there? Were you worried that there would be sort of, a stigma around around it when you went to have that conversation? Um, yeah, you're definitely worried about that. You're definitely worried about being judged um, and, and thinking that you must be incompetent if this is happening to you. And, um, but I, like you said, I was just doing it more to do the right thing, give them a heads up. I never not turned up to a project we were working on. I always made, never wanted to leave them, anyone in the dark. So to give them all the heads up that it was happening um yeah but it didn't it definitely didn't feel good and um yeah and and well yeah often those conversations i know we're on a pretty dark topic already um but i think sometimes the thing that is overlooked a lot when people think about you know a director of a company that goes into liquidation you the human being behind that situation is often sort of disregarded or dismissed and you know it wasn't just you you've got a wife you've got children you had family working in your business what kind of a response did your family sort of have initially when this happened um obviously you know, the wife was pretty devastated that this is i was the main breadwinner and this is suddenly income stops instantly that very day um and Family members working for the business, obviously, they were. I was more, I was incredibly stressed about that because 
know, you don't want to see what other people had at work. Um, so yeah, they were obviously not good either. Um, and even our not our regular staff, we had guys that had worked for us, you know, ten years. We're like family, you know, they've been there when it was just myself and them on the tools, you know. So it was just it was a horrible situation that human side of having to tell them and um, kind of explain how it's happened and yeah. you know, how you can try and help them moving forward when you there's not much you can do. No. Did you keep it a secret until it happened or were you talking to them throughout? No, I sort of kept it a secret. I just didn't know how to deal with it. It was sort of business as usual because we, we were just so busy. Um, uh, obviously, I told my wife as it was coming closer. Yeah. Um, but it was just one of those things that was hard to talk about. Definitely, definitely. And it is something that's quite common uh, in terms of, I think, by nature, tradies, just keeping this stuff as, you know, your sole responsibility on your shoulders and thinking that you can fix it or find a way or you don't know how to broach the subject or you don't want to worry people if it doesn't happen and you can make it all work. Um, but the other aspect of it, I think, too, that's important to sort of recognise is as a tradie, being a tradesperson is a little bit like a big puzzle piece in your identity, really. And when you can't work in your trade business anymore for a period of time, what is that like when you, you know, one day you're a subby, you are on site running jobs, you've got a business, and the next day you're essentially unemployed and you can't work in your industry in certain capacities? Yeah, it's horrible because you've done the one thing for 15 years, um, put so much effort into it, and then suddenly can't even do that um, at all. Um, so it's, 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 it's really tricky um, trying to find work, trying to figure out what I was going to do, what part of the industry or a completely different industry. Just something foreign. I've, I've never been in that situation because, like you said earlier, I'd started it straight out of. At a high school, I'd start in the same trade. So, um, yeah, it wasn't wasn't a fun experience. Definitely. And I suppose, too, when you think about um, being punished for something and not being able to work on the tools because you're being punished for a period of time, you always sort of think, well, it should be about defects or it should be because I didn't build something right or, um, you know, because I broke a law or something like that. And in your circumstances, it was almost like you were a victim of what happened to your other customers with the insolvencies and the preferential payment and then, you know, going and back paying all those guys, which, you you know, there's a lot of people out there who have just not even put their ABN workers on the payroll yet who have got their head in the sand with this sort of stuff and uh, it could well be something that's this Mexican wave that one day is just going to come crashing down on them and, you know, maybe then you would say, well, you should have known better if if you've sort of not done anything about it until now. It's pretty well well known now. But you, you changed your guys over right at the time that that legislation sort of came up and you, you went out and did the right thing from the start to protect your business. Yeah, and, you know, I always thought I had a fail-safe. I used to say to the wife that, you know, if things got slow or there wasn't enough work, we didn't have to have a business this big because we were quite big at the time. It always just fall back onto me going back on the tools and doing what 
are used to doing. But when this happens, that's not even an option. Suddenly you can't even go back and go and go and knock and try and get some work in your trade. That's gone. So it, it, yeah, it's really tough. Yeah. Um, one of the reasons that I really wanted to have you on this podcast is that I've always thought that you were a pretty um, good business thinker, like a strategy thinker. And you always sort of saw the bigger picture in terms of what was going on with our industry. And we've had some awesome conversations over the years, but one in particular comes to mind for me. And that was, I ran some training a few years ago and it was, it was actually right about when your business went into liquidation and you still came to my training, even though you must've known at the time that that was going to happen. And I remember you saying to me afterwards, it was training about contract management, security payment. I remember you saying to a lawyer and I afterwards, look, why don't they just give us standardised contract terms because, you know, these unfair contract terms and these, you know, it's so one-sided, it's so heavily weighted in favour of the builder, all of this stuff. Why can't they just give us standardised contract terms? And we had a bit of a chat about it at the time, but is that something that you still think is is the way forward for the industry with these problems? Yeah, I do, because it, for us, we, like I said, we work for quite a number of different builders that still sometimes use that standard contract that was 150 pages or whatever it was, but all they had to stamp in the corner was amended, and then we had to go fishing through trying to see what they'd snuck into, which causes that snuck into the contract. So every job, even the same builder with different projects, contract will change in little ways and they'd try and sneak things in and we'd have to scroll through all these pages, try and find what it was, you know, and um, try and then negotiate it out of our contract somehow. So it would be so much better if for every, I don't know, a certain dollar value of project, say for that, um, that there was a standard contract that couldn't be amended, that had that was done to, to suit that size of project. And obviously we expect that there's going to be protection for a bill that we Everyone knows that they need protection as well. But like you said before, though, these contracts we deal with these days are 100% one-sided. Uh, um, the section that they actually dealt with the subcontractors' rights was normally about three clauses out of you know, 500 clauses in the contract. So um, I think it would be very beneficial for uh, there to be a standardised contract. And you know that has to obviously be legislated. It has to come from government because it's not going to come from the private sector. There's too much them to do with feather in their nest um, with their own contracts it works too much for them in their favor definitely something to talk about even the australian standard conditions of contract uh when you look at who purchases those and drafts them they're really the builders are the ones that are going to buy them the subbies aren't going to be buying them from sar global or wherever they get them from so um i guess it doesn't matter how much any particular body who writes the contract says that it's going to be completely impartial that's going to color their thinking in terms of whether or not they're going to draft a contract a certain way because they're not going to bother drafting it if nobody will buy it uh, and I think in terms of the bargaining power that subbies have with going to builders and saying no I, here's my contract why don't you sign my contract I mean that's just absurd isn't it yeah this doesn't happen it would never happen um and you know that was one of the, the major dramas with it. So, um, you know, when you tried to go back with your clauses, that you know, just almost laugh at you and go, "No, that's staying in there. You're not putting the line through that one. We don't get the job. You know, we'll go to the next subbie." Yeah. So, 
give them your own contract, but yeah, wouldn't even stand a chance. No, exactly. They just use someone else. I remember you telling me one day, though, that you actually pulled a builder's contract out and started quoting his bullying harassment clauses back at him because he was giving one of your guys shit. Yeah, I did. No, that actually was fun. And realised that most of the guys don't, most of the builders don't understand their own contract. Um, so, yeah, it was good to get one back, even if it was just a little thing. <laughs> Classic. Well, uh, look, there's just one last thing that I have to ask you, which would be really silly of me not to ask, and that is if there's one thing you could have done differently, what would it have been? Um, probably, like I think that first conversation we had years and years ago about not wanting to wreck relationships with builders, I would have um, really sort of put more effort into covering my business as opposed to just going with the flow and winning more projects and signing the contracts because it worked time because the bigger you get the when it does go bad with those contracts it changes from small dollar amounts to massive dollar amounts and it can all unravel very quickly so um obviously you want to grow a business but i think it needs to be measured and make sure that you're covered along the way yeah for sure so what you're saying there is obviously you grew your business for increased revenue turnover and didn't sort of realize that you were exponentially growing that contractual risk with it because you're signing more contracts more frequently or just bigger dollar contracts is it yeah and the risk does does um, go up when you go into those bigger commercial projects and there's no way around that and you're playing in a bit of a uh, snake pit so to speak where there's no mercy given so it's definitely a different way to trade um, and I sort of just thought it was a natural progression, but really should have um, gotten a lot more advice earlier to just cover things as we went, as we grew. Did you feel like you could pick a builder's conduct a lot better by the end of things? Oh, 100%. Even not just the builder, but even the management teams within the builder. Um, the bigger ones obviously have multiple. So you might have had a great relationship with one project team, for the last three years and suddenly the next big job is being run by a different one and within five minutes like you, you've signed your contract it's all good and you get to site and you realize these guys are meant to just fight from day one so that's when it's a bit too late you're going to try and finish your project but you can tell the ones that are going to go bad definitely yeah for sure well thank you very much for your time and um you know just probably want to acknowledge too that you've dredged all this up years after this has happened and you didn't have to do that. You didn't have to relive all that uh, by going through that today. So I am grateful for you sharing your story. I know that our listeners will be grateful. And um, just so that everybody listening knows, you have found your feet. You have got a really good job. Your team, uh, your family have got good jobs and, you know, the light at the end of the tunnel after the process, you're in it now. Um, so, I mean, is there something that you would want to say about that, about, you know, if somebody is at the end of their tether with their business and everything looks hope, hopeless and they feel like they're backed into the corner, um, what would you say to somebody who, who was sort of coming up against that now? Um, it does feel like the weight of the world um, on your shoulders and you feel like there's no way to get through it. And look, to be honest, it does take a, a fair bit of time and it takes a bit of fortitude, um, but you do get through it. Um, over time um, and at the end of the day as much as this is, is our lives and this is this um, our trade can 
really be a part of our identity. It's a way to make a living um, and you need to keep it in that box. Go, okay, if I can't do it that way, I've got to find something else. Definitely. All right, well, I will sign off. Thank you very much again. Um, yeah, it's it's been a really good discussion. I think, I think our listeners will get a lot out of it. So thank you very much. No problem. Thanks, Michelle. So that concludes the uh, guest interview portion of this podcast, but I did want to touch back in with you now to make sure that you're aware that if you are going through something like this, you are not alone. If you are feeling this way uh, or if you're experiencing these problems with your business, uh, this is not a sales pitch. I am reaching out to you right now to say if you need help, feel free to contact me. You can email me at questions at tricksofyourtrade.com.au. I can be a listening ear or if you need to be hooked up with somebody who can give you some good advice to help you get out of a situation, uh, I can typically point you in the right direction. Now, if you are experiencing feelings of sadness, stress, anxiety or depression or panic or overwhelming anger or rage, These are all indications that the situation that you are in is affecting your mental health and potentially you might need to reach out for some help from a professional. Uh, It might help for you to know that Mates in Construction has got a 24-7 support line that you can call and talk to a professional confidentially uh, for some advice. That number is 1300 642 111. Now that concludes my episode for this week. Uh, If you have got any questions in relation to the topics that we've talked about today, you can always contact me through my website, www.tricksofyourtrade.com.au or alternatively, you can just email me, questions at tricksofyourtrade.com.au.